Welcome back to The Mix with Matt and Dan. Brought to you by 500 Rockets Marketing. How many rockets do you need? Matt, how many rockets do you need? 500. At least 500. <laughs> Dial it in wherever you want. It's great to be back. Uh, this is our first episode of our first podcast, even though we've done five episodes before that went into the can. We're not telling <laughs> anybody. Hey, you got to test things. How's it going? Matt Bruchet over there? Yes, sir. This is we're in the uh, we're in shed Zeppelin. We're in the home of the most teched out shed that I know about. In Austin, Texas. In Austin, Texas. That's right. When people come over, they are genuinely shocked and in awe, shock and awe <laughs> of what it's like to be in shed Zeppelin. You know, see, Netflix has a new show out called Sur- Surprising Interiors, something like that. Okay. And it's ordinary looking houses, like in the suburbs or whatever. On the outside, nothing has been done to them. Oh, I love it. But when you walk inside, yeah. something incredible has been done. Yeah. Do you feel like this would qualify for that show? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, yeah. Nobody expects all this in this shed. No, they don't. No. In fact, when I've invited people over to the shed, they kind of walk in the front door. They walk through the house. They go to the backyard, and they kind of look like Eeyore a little bit. They're like, all right, I'm going to go sit in this dude's shed. And then they come out here and they're like, you know, it's it's the despair between just the fact that we're able to take them down a notch and then overwhelm them with the amount of tech in here. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, it, it's impactful. I like it. It fits too. Austin. Isn't Austin called Silicon Gulch? I, I don't know. Instead but I do of know Silicon that it's, Valley, it's Silicon Gulch. So it's got the old school mixed with the new school. And that's Shed Zeppelin. Yeah, that's about right. That's about right. It really is business to business. Austin's business to business tech. Uh, we don't do much business to consumer here. How long have you been in Austin? Yeah, since 2000. So so you've seen a lot of the uh, tech yeah, industry I got, here. Yeah, I got here right after everybody got rich on the first wave. <laughs> so right when everybody, like literally when I got hired at Dell, they were walking like thousands of people out because the boom was over. So you came into, that was your first job here in Austin and Dell? It was. So what was the progression into that? Uh, I needed a job, and I had graduated college with the concept that C's get degrees, and I didn't really have an understanding of what I wanted to do, but I knew that if you put me on the phone, I could pretty much talk you into anything. And so I got a sales phone So it was job. either politics, prostitution, yeah, pimp. Right. You could be in a pimp. That's right. And so I got... I like You kind of are a pimp. Yeah, I like... I like <laughs> Well, You're a product I, pimp. Yeah, there you go. So I, I like uh, sales. Uh, I like talking to people. I like sales. I like talking about technology. And I, I just murdered selling computers on the phone. I just killed it. So like business computers or personal computers? Whatever what? you want. How many do you want? You know, I mean, I've sold millions of dollars worth of computers on the phone. I've taken somebody who called for a single iPod. And I've taken them up to doing deals in the hundreds of thousands of dollars from a single iPod. Well, what, give us some of that. What are your secrets for that? Like, yeah. what are your triggers or what are your general themes for bringing people from this uh, into something they haven't even thought of yet? Yeah, it's a, there's a couple things. The number one thing you have to be able to do is listen, which seems obvious, right? But I mean, I mean, listen with an empathetic ear. Like, you have to be able to... Put yourself in their situation, realize that their best thinking came up with the solution that they're asking for, but the solution that they're asking for may or may not solve the problem. 
And most of the time when you're talking business to business, you're talking about problems that are institutionalized, right? Like they're like, all right, well, I need to buy this iPod. But the truth is, is that they're trying to help a kid with ADD. And maybe the thing that helps the kid with ADD is giving them a personal computer that gives them a suite of things where they can bounce around and iterate on 15 different things. So that's a small example. So, but, but you're listening past them at that point. So you're listening, like most people can't really, it seems like, put their finger on exactly what it is that they need to solve their problem. Like they know they have a problem, but they don't really understand the true nature of the problem. Yeah. Like where it comes from and what is out there that could potentially fix that problem. They've just heard something and they've latched onto it and they're like, that'll fix it. Yeah, and to be fair, most people don't care about anything other than just trying to stay alive, <laughs> right? Like, they're just trying to get through the day. They've got kids, a husband, a wife. They've got life problems. They don't necessarily care about whether or not this TV that you know every single thing about is going to actually be the thing that solves the problem the way they think it is. They just need a TV. They just don't want to think their way through it because they're thinking about too many other things. Yeah. What I keep finding is that, you know, we've talked about this, that the overload of information in the modern age, basically, if, you're, if your brain is 100, a board of 100 light bulbs, they're all on all the time, just right. burning hard. And if you offer, if you suggest to someone that they need to turn on another light bulb, like, well, you really need to learn something about blank, they can't do it. Right. And so they, they can't really think through one problem completely. Right. And so a lot of times what they're doing when they're bringing in experts is bringing in somebody who has thought through that problem incredibly completely. Yeah. And a lot of people misconstrue that experience from a sales point of view, right? Because like the company has told them what to listen for. They've worked out this sales thing. And so you get kind of the artificial side of it. I think genuinely when you have authenticity in business or you have authenticity in that sales relationship, you are genuinely trying to help them regardless of whether or not you're maximizing shareholder value, right? right. And I think if you can find that, that I, I think ultimately that that's a better way to maximize shareholder value is to give people the best solution for their problems, not necessarily the best solution because it's on promo. Well, that statement, and you hear this a lot in business, maximizing shareholder value. Does that mean like at this instant? Does that mean uh, three months from now? Does yeah, that mean... You no, know, Donald Trump would tell you at this instant. Right. And that's a lot of business people. They're driven totally by yeah. as much money. I don't care about the fallout. I don't care about tomorrow. Mm -hmm. As much money right now as possible. Yeah. And there's an argument to be made for that that's pretty solid. Wall Street works on that. Um, if the business can't do it, it typically dies and falls off gets consumed by another business and it just becomes a way that the other business gets to grow. There's a lot of opportunity to use that. I mean, our society, whether you like it or not, is absolutely built on this concept and the things that change in your life change because of that. And I think that if you want to get, you know, I don't know, spiritual about it, there's probably a truth in a Darwinism side and an evolutionary side where things need to die. Things need to be killed off. And the things that are the strongest do that. The things that get killed off would not agree with that statement. <laughs> then, well, <laughs> no, they would not. But it's not that, the strongest, though. That even that, like the word "strongest" in this, no, it's, it's not. not the, it's not the strongest. It's, it's not, not the smartest. You know, sometimes it's the cruelest. Mm -hmm. You know, like Kurt Vonnegut had a great line about how um, 
basically Britain took over the entire world, you know, even though they were a tiny little island, Mm -hmm. it's because no other culture could believe that those white people were going to be that cruel. Right. Like they couldn't, they would not prepare for what Britain was going to do when they sent warriors out. So I look at that as a great example of like what marketing and sales and all of these other things are trying to solve. Right. Like that's absolutely true that the cruelest and it has this whole thing where it's not necessarily the strongest, but if you want to build a better system than capitalism, right, you have to deal with that use case. You have to deal with the use case. I totally agree that, you know, sometimes being cruel and killing something off ultimately clears the path and it may (laughs) not be immediate, but it clears the path in the future. And if you don't end up killing things off, you end up with 500,000 street sweepers who are dealing with communism and bringing down the system because innovation can't happen. Right. And it's, you know, this is one of the arguments about uh, against liberalism. And I'm a liberal. I've always been a liberal. I came from the working class. You know, I, you know, don't like rich people. I've never liked power. It's, it's built into my DNA, you know, from coming off tobacco farms in Kentucky two generations ago. Then my father was a you know general contractor and I was the first person to go to college. So I have a good, strong, healthy hatred of the rich. Uh, and deep suspicion of anybody in power, yeah. you know, and I know that they've cheated to get there. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> right. Nothing happened. Yeah. Nothing it. happened because of the quality of who they were. It was because the nefariousness of their contacts. Understood. So I have all that. But on the other side, like I think liberalism does fall apart really badly because it doesn't deal with the dark side of humanity, the sheer predatory nature of being on planet Earth. Everything eats everything else. That's what it does. That's the truth of it, right? Like, you know, go be friends with a shark. (laughs) See how that works out for you. Well, and, you know, there's there's an organism in caves that eats rock. (laughs) Like, rock thought it was off the menu. Like, sorry, rock. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're on, yeah. (laughs) Everything gets eaten, period. That's right. Or ground down. You put water on rock and all of a sudden it's just a nub, you know? Yeah, you have to deal with that. You cannot, you know, sort of... Um, you know, a beautiful world, your way out of this. Yes. You have to deal with the fact that people compete. Capitalism is really great at setting up competitive structures. It doesn't have a morality. It doesn't care who wins. It's just, it's, it's a competitive situation. Yes. And if you win because you're the cruelest or you cheat the best, you still win. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, there's a huge argument to be made you know, I mean, the cruel works. Cruelism works. <laughs> cruel I mean, works. I, I don't know. Is that our like, fourth T-shirt? I guess. Yeah, cruel works. We're you gonna, know? Yeah, all right. So that's the that's gonna be the title of this uh, episode. Cruel works. Yeah. Well, let me tell you what's cruel about marketing. Marketing's winning. Marketing, and right now, and this is a little bit of a jump on Segway or psychological jump. But have you been to the beach lately? Like, there are a large number of people who are just getting just just ripped around because like the psychological impact of this marketing is clearly not helping people become, you know, get to the gym what do and you lift mean? weights. I mean, the consumption economy oh, yeah. that we have right oh, now, it's, it's clearly dominating. It, it's a psychological tsunami. It, like I've worked in alternative health for almost 10 years now. Yeah. And like all the alternative, you know, med people, they're like, all you gotta do is, you know, not eat this or not eat that. And then they send them back out to fight against the world's greatest psychological advertising persuasion machine ever. Ever. And like, why can't they change their habits? <laughs> yeah. Like, look what you're doing. Right. You know, 
Well, I, you know, I've been making some big, bold predictions lately around technology, and I actually was on another podcast doing a guest spot talking about uh, some technology that's going to come that I think will, will give uh, consumers more opportunity to fight against that. I think we're going we're gonna to see a renaissance of kind of balance in humanity, and it's going to be delivered by technology. You think it's going to empower the individual to fight oh, back against I can the system? I can definitively persuade you right now that it will. So you're talking about Amazon Go, right? Yeah, that's that, right. That um, the system's coming that, that's a data system, right? Yeah, it's like, I, I look at it as the third operating system. So define Amazon Go for me, because I know what it is, but I don't know what it is. Yeah, so they basically built uh, sensors. They have like thousands of sensors in the store that track every movement that you make. And they're high res enough so that the computer can outline your body and get enough differentiation between your fingers and the thing it's grabbing. And you're signing off on this when you walk through the door? Yeah, you put your little, uh, you scan it. and You it, allow, you it agreed? Is, it, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there any limit to what they can do with that data? Oh, I don't know. I don't care because it's so much better. Like, you won't care either. Sure yeah. I would. Like no, When they start care. identifying you. No, to you don't care. No. Take you to the firing no, squad? No, you don't care. It'll be like, it'll be ironic when you care. You bought, you know, Captain Crunch four times. That shows that you are a communist and we're going to shoot sure, you. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. All that. But, uh, you know, at the same time, like, do you really care? Like, maybe you like... Frosted Flakes because you like Captain Crunch and maybe you need to know. Now, I love like what I love about technology is that it's so disruptive culturally yeah. and, and in ways people can't even, you know, begin to think about until oh, yeah. it's happening. Well, you know, you find you mentioned it like we were just talking about the cashier experience and the ceremony besides going out the door. And one of my feedback points on Amazon Go is I first of all, let me explain the third operating system. Like the Macintosh GUI going from green screen to like an actual computer that you know it today was the first major shift. That was the first operating system. The second operating system was the mobile phone, iPhone. The iPhone really revolutionized it. Amazon Go owns the third operating system. The proximity experience, the presence layer is the third operating system. People just aren't acknowledging it yet. Mm -hmm. And it's going to, you're going to um, take off your stupid Google glasses, take off the, the thing that you put on the eyes. There's no contact lens that's going in your eye. It, there's not, we're not going to do that. Like the, the presence layer is going to be the machine learning that tracks you and follows you around and delivers software in front of you uh, without having to see it all. Okay. All right. But there's the side effect of that is that when I went into the Amazon Go store, it was really boring, <laughs> right? Now I got a crappy cup of fruit in front of me. Now I got a, a, a really crappy turkey sandwich. It doesn't look that appealing. It actually took some excitement out of that experience, and it's going to have to be replaced if I'm going to continue to go there. Like so, taking away the sloppiness of human experience and yeah, replacing like it with efficiency yeah like doesn't maybe turn I'll out to see be a cute cashier or maybe i'll you know do something like engagement. see somebody crazy in line who turns around and tells you like that's my favorite experience of the grocery somebody just will turn around and tell you stuff like you know ah, i just had a stroke three weeks ago but i'm back <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm back i'm here we're doing it and, you know it's like great you made it to the grocery store line you know like Life like I was hard. standing in line. I did a podcast once. I used to do a, po a comedy podcast called Poodle Ghost. Okay. Is that what it was? No, it was jazz. It was joke jazz. And we would gather jokes every week. Like I had another comedian on and we'd go through Twitter and gather jokes. The best jokes we read all week. And then we'd read them on air and then talk about the joke about why we liked it. 
And I have a, I had a, a second Twitter, alternative Twitter named Poodle Ghost. And it was just the worst possible jokes I could ever write. Like, like morally bad, like good jokes, but just horrible things. Yeah. And I thought of it while standing in line at a grocery at Sprouts grocery. There's an old lady in front of me taking forever to figure out the, you know, swiper card or insert her card or number her card. And I was behind her and I was like, what does she smell like? She smells like dead poodles, like all the poodles that she's had in her whole life. Mm. Just poodle ghosts. They're probably around her right now. Mm-hmm. And so that that came about because of the grocery. Well, and Amazon and, Go is going to take that from me. Well, they I, I think of it better in a more maybe uh, happy way, right? Optimistic way, if you will, uh, that they're just going to disperse that to other parts of the store. Right? And they're going to get let you put your own little personality in there, Dan. Really? And you're, yeah. You're going to be able to go into the store. You're going to, so I, I'll make 10 software predictions. I've made it on some other podcasts, but the gist of it is that there's a whole layer of software ecosystems and monetization opportunities for people that they don't have right now. Nutritionists will be able to monetize an ecosystem that will allow, like Amazon can put a little two by two inch screen next to each product. They'll do something different, but just think of it that way. And when you walk up to that product, you'll have your avatar there your stupid little personal choice avatar and it'll be funny and somebody next to you will laugh at your avatar because they'll see it too and then you'll have this community experience <laughs> because you'll share these avatar that is jokes. such a weak prediction of what will happen culturally. It's well, that way. Like, it'll American probably be a culture. fist fight. You know, <laughs> there, don't look at my avatar. Yeah, you know, or maybe it'll just be a color. It'll just be a pink box or a blue box if that's what you want, a shade of the color. If you want to not have a lot of personality, you want something pretty. All right, let's cut here and we'll take a break and we'll be right back to The Mix with Matt and Dan. Hey, welcome back to The Mix with Matt and Dan. We call it The Mix because it's the marketing mix. It's a play off that phrase, right? And this is a marketing company that we run, 500 Rockets. Matt is the CEO, the visionary. You've got a future, a futurism to you, right? Do I? Yeah. You have a certain futurism. You're a tech entrepreneur kind of guy you know that's that's coupled with the fact that i can't remember anything <laughs> so i have no memory do you have a memory so then you don't want the past you don't want to deal with the past and history it there doesn't no, interest you there is no past it's all future it's all future it's all right now i i'm surprised at how little i can remember really yeah it really just immediately evaporates so give me give me an example like of something you probably should have remembered well, like if you sat here and started hammering me on what I've done today, uh-huh. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to put it together. Now, is that because you're ADD, because you get some kind of brain damage, or is it just you're oriented towards <laughs> constant progress? You're like a <laughs> mental shark. You have to constantly be moving forward or you drown. Yeah. I have, uh, I don't know if it's, you know, it's, it is ADD. It's been officially diagnosed, so I can't get out of that. But I can tell you that maybe it's the ADD, maybe it's some sort of... Um, I don't want to give myself a big serious illness. There's a lot of serious illness out there that we should raise awareness for. People calling themselves OCD when they're not, et cetera, et cetera. But what I can tell you I is, prefer to call it obsessive compulsive disorder. Okay. I say that every time. I, I got it. I got it. I don't know if that makes you AC, OCD, buddy. You know what I mean? I think the person touching the doorknob 38 times before they leave, that person's OCD. Uh, my point is that... Um, I do have two conversations going at all times in my head. And so 
I will continue a full-blown conversation irregardless of reality uh, in my head, shutting the rest of the world out. And that typically puts me in the future. Uh, well, what's rather. that What's that conversation about? Trying to figure something out? Trying to find your angle? Like, you're an angle guy. Uh, you're I, trying it, to understand the culture and see what, you know, not in a bad way, but you're no, trying to see where you fit. There's a guy who came out with, you know, they have IQ. And then a long time ago, I think around 1996, he was like, well, there's an EQ. EQ, yeah, all, yeah, that, yeah. all that stuff, yeah. So, but what I, what I associate or what I was attracted to about that concept is that I have an incredibly empathetic mind. Right, so I can put myself in somebody's shoes and walk through a scenario in their life, and I can actually role play out how they're going to feel based on different things that are kind of stimulus that are given to them, and I'm able to kind of unwind what's going to be the most likely scenario, which is a weird. I don't know if a lot of people have that skill or something, but I tend to do that more than like everything else. Have you always been like that, or is that sales training? Is that influenced by... I think that that was like ADD training and talking to psychologists at a very young age. Well, and a lot of people... I used to be married to a psychotherapist, so I know a lot about this stuff um, in a tangential way. But like adaptive mechanisms for... If, somebody, if you have something that your brain doesn't do very well or that you have an emotional wounding of whatever type... You'll come up with adaptive mechanisms that make you, it's like going blind and your smell gets incredibly good or your hearing. Yeah. Well, there's so yeah. like you'll have an emotional hit on something, but then like a lot of times those people become super empaths on something else. And that's why like a lot of therapists will be messed up people, but they're incredibly em empathetic because of that. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, I can tell you I have a, yeah. So I have a physical problem. I have an auditory processing delay. So if I'm talking to somebody and I'm thinking about something, I will actually sequence the words that you said to me after 15 thoughts in my head. So I will finish thinking about 15 things and then hear what you said. And in real time, I have been told that that is maybe a five or 10 second delay <laughs> at times. I've seen you do that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that's a real thing. Uh, my wife thinks it's because I don't love her. Um, right, because not listening <laughs> yeah, perfectly at every yeah. second uh, equates lack of yeah, love. Yeah, and you know, I'm sure it feels that way, but the truth is is that that's actually a physical the that's part of my charm. That's like a physical part <laughs> of me. And I think it's maybe because I was dropped on a head as, on my head as a child several times, but who knows. Yeah, everybody's got that stuff. Like whenever when you hear the concept of a human brain, everybody thinks that's a singular but it's really not. There's so many different variations of how brains work. Yeah. Like I'm a multiprocessor. I have no ADD whatsoever. Okay. Like I can incredibly focus on things, but I usually focus on three or four things at the same time, but I'm not, they're not overrunning each other. Yeah. You know, so, and I've been this way forever. I'm very field aware of what's going on around me. I'm also working on a problem or something creative in the back of my head. There's also a joke. Like there's always a clown listening to everything and just kind of saying, Hey, go ahead and say this. <laughs> yeah. 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 I understand that too. Uh, I used to be a little bit more, um, salacious with the words I would use to people and a little bit out there. And, uh, now I think I just come off as harsh and overly honest at times. Right. Well, I think your, your issue isn't, it's because it's a cultural disjuncture, you know, like in business and in normal life, you're supposed to talk a certain way, and that's the way people are used to talking. And there's a little bit of room for, you know, 
comedy or shock or, you know, you know, going outside of that, but there's not a lot. If you were over in my world and entertainment, you would not even be close to being enough to get somebody's attention yet. Right. Like all those things that you stop yourself saying, you know, they're not shocking. That's like first base. Yeah. And at what level inside that world that you lived in, like, Clearly there's talent and there's like comedy writers that you've worked with. You've worked on comedy writing teams and whatnot. I guess what would be the highest level in that order? Because normally there's like the executives who have to act all professional. And then there's like the people underneath, I'm assuming the talent or the comedy writers who are paid to be just ridiculous. Do you see that? I mean, clearly it's all coming out in California now where maybe the executives were equally as ridiculous as the comedy writers. Uh, did you experience that? Well, the, the, there's always one or two people who live in both worlds. Like the head writer has to deal with the executives and the, the comedy staff. So that person is usually also a good comedy writer or they've come up through the comedy writing ranks so they can talk to the actual creatives and get respect and like, you know, create the right atmosphere. Mm-hmm. But then they can turn that off and go talk to the executives and, you know, put everything in order and make sure there's a schedule and all that kind of stuff so that the executives feel okay about life. And so there's usually a, a, at least one person, usually two, maybe the showrunner is also like that, who's come through creative but now does business and executive kind of work too, that there's always a moat between the creatives and the executives. Putting them together ever, bad idea. Mm-hmm. Because the executives are just bait they're just they're just a straight guy for the the comedians. Right. No matter how powerful they are or whether it'll cost you your job, the comedians just lean over and say it to each other. You know, but if you just let them turn them loose, they would say it right to the executive's face. Right. And executives don't deal well with, you know, disrespect. But that that concept literally doesn't exist in comedy world. There's no such thing as respect. <laughs> right, right. It's just out the door. Take it off the table. So you do get some of that disjuncture, I think, between like, and I've, I've learned this in the last four or five years since I've been working intensely inside businesses. Like, they don't want me to turn it off because part of my appeal is that I'm coming in as the creative. So they want to be entertained somewhat. They want me to be a little out there. Mm-hmm. But they want it also, you know, it has to have a governor on it. Right. They're not ready for the full. No, they're not ready for the genius that comes with. I've seen your process. I've seen it up close. I've seen you take something that was super ambiguous and apply creative modeling to it, which is not discussed in business and it's a very big hole in it. And I think that what is interesting about that process, and I don't know if that's unique to you or not, but I have seen the outcome of that get better with given more time and space. The more time and space you have time to go through the creative process, the higher quality of the output. And that's very counterintuitive to what I've seen in business or what I experienced is that, that, you know, that the creative can suffer as long as we get it to market. Right. Right. And well, the problem is if, if the creative is essential to the product, yeah. you know, like you talked about the iPhone earlier and the iPhone clearly was created by some creatives. It looks a certain way. It feels a certain way. It, it has a personality, you know, and all that stuff. Those are creative decisions. Mm-hmm. And whoever was working on it was given, you know, some time and resource and team in order to do that. Right. And it clearly, you know, made a huge difference. That's an interesting point. I don't know if the tech people would allow you to claim the iPhone as a creative outcome rather than maybe one that was tech driven. I think that they may stake their forks in the ground and we may have a little internal war on that. 
I would bet though that like within that team, like Joan Ivy or whatever his name yeah, is, you yeah, know, the design whatever. guys. Yeah. They're, the visual it's not, designers. It's not Joan. Let's be real clear about that. What is it? Johnny. Johnny. Oh, whatever it is. Yeah. Jivey. We're going to call him Jivey because I can actually say that. Done. So, you know, designers kind of do that. It's like in the design world though, it's more, it's more drama instead of comedy for the most part. Like right. they take themselves very seriously and you know, it's, it's about the interaction with <laughs> <laughs> form and function are one, but it's and, still creativity. And when yeah, you hit no, it right, right, it is, it, yeah. it works. That's fair. So it depends on what and, you need for and your to creative. be fair compared to their peers they they look like Picasso, right? right? You know, I mean, if you, you know, we talk, you know, there's a lot of examples in tech where we get it wrong. Well, and one of our clients right now, we're doing some naming work for a client. And it's one of my favorite works to do, kind of work to do for business, because you, you can see it. Like when you name something correctly, that name will have power and juice and do work for that company forever. Right. If you name it weekly, you're like mediocre, then it doesn't do much. It's kind of neutral. Yeah. And if you misname a company, like or misname a product, it's going to do damage to the sales process, to to the marketing for for all time. Yeah, I've uh, been that this area is not an area of my expertise, uh, but I've seen you do it. I've seen it work. I've seen I've been on the receiving end of the power of a good name and uh, it's it's one of those things where if you don't do it right, you don't really know you didn't do it right other than maybe indifference in the market. And when you have a good name coupled with all the other things, integrity and brand and communication strategy and a good sales model and all of those other things that have to be there too, the name itself becomes the symbol of whether or not people are getting it. Right. Yeah. Like I was watching, uh, I like to watch movies I've watched a lot. And one of them, I like the social network. I just like watching the Facebook story, um, mainly because I like uh, the way that it was written. And I like this, the cadence of the movie works well. Um, but, you know, they immediately within a week, they were talking about how it was Facebook me. Right. Right. It was immediate. And right. it, it was like that was one of the shocking moments. And I picked up that layer after I've seen the movie several times. But it was just one that stuck out last night. It was hey, they were just blown away that, you know, within a week, people were like, hey, Facebook me. And it became the verb. Well, Facebook already had a name. They stole that name from something that was already out there. And people have, may have been saying, hey, find me on Facebook. But they turned it from the noun to the verb. Right. And, you know, that impact, being able to claim all of that kind of legacy juice out there, uh, profoundly impacted their business, right? Yeah, and when you when you find a real a word or you know a short name for something that works like that, there are certain tests. You know, you can just feel it. It's like it's fun to say. Mm -hmm. People enjoy saying it. Like they'll almost throw it out. You know, uh, because it's fun to to just use the word. Right. And when you find the right name like that, it, it retains its meaning, even though you're playing with it. You can take it through like noun, you can turn it into an adjective, you can turn it into you know, all sorts of different things because it has pliability without losing meaning. Uber is a good example. I mean, that word, you know, it's a German word. It's been around forever. Nietzsche used it, you know, in Ubermensch. So it became Superman. That's the history of that word. But it was already close to being something that was strong in English, super. But it was new. It's short. It has the little, whatever those two dots are, over top of the U. I don't know what they're called. Yeah, I don't know. I can never remember. Dutch. Dutch. <laughs> the two eyeballs over the U. Yeah. And it's fun to say, you know, 
We're going to get an Uber. Right. Easy. And right. so, you know, those kind of words, they're not, it's not just plucking them out of nowhere. Like you have to take it through an organized process and keep it in connection with the company that you're doing the work for. So it's constantly like, is this going to do work for you? Is this going to actually, when you say it, customers are going to be able to identify themselves as, oh, I'm a customer of that. Right. And that's what you want your... Yeah, I think a really important note there, um, having processed what you've said many times before, I've heard you kind of talk about it in that way, is that the name works for you when you're not there. And I've seen that happen. I've seen names work for people when they're not there um, that we've created in, you know, for people, you know, for products that we've named and things like that. So I, I'm a believer. I'm a, so let's go back to what we were talking about, Amazon Go. Yeah. Horrible name. Oh, yeah, it's probably, a, yeah, but Amazon has notorious for stupid names, right? Like you can't, you, Amazon has millions of products and you can't remember any of them. Right. Because they don't take naming seriously. Right. And all these companies are like that. Google, great name. But after that, you know, Google Plus, like when they try their own social network, that's stupid. Right. Nobody is going to reuse that word as their, as their social network. Right. And the word plus means nothing. Right. There's no, there's no integrity of meaning to that word. So when you talk about Amazon Go, so and I still have this problem. Like as soon as you said it, you know, to me the other day, I'm like, what is Amazon Go again? Yeah. Well, just, you know, the tech people who deal with Amazon Web Services, they will understand the ass whooping of Amazon's naming structure, right? The AWS system is a product of probably like 500 products that have stupid names that mean even further than Amazon Go. I thought Amazon Go was increasing their value of naming with Amazon Go. Yeah? Yeah. It's <laughs> funny. Yeah, they like took a massive step up. There's, they have so many products, right? That people who talk about this entire suite of products call it AWS. They call, Amazon is so bad at naming products. They have 500 products that have one name. Right. You know, and they, yeah, yeah they slap Amazon on everything. That's a perfect everything. example of crappy product naming. Yeah, they're lucky because they, you know, they're so big in that space. And the name, the main name, Amazon, which is a great word, you yeah. know, it was pre-established, been used a lot in the culture, but it has a lot of exoticness to it, you know, and it was a, it was a great choice. It was fine. Yeah. You know, and then they infuse it now with so much, you know, about that company and Bezos and all that. So it's, it's there. Everybody has it. But everything they've done since has been a horrible idea for naming. <laughs> That's right. All right, let's take a quick break, and we're going to come back, and we're going to finish up uh, talking a little bit about Amazon Go. We are The Mix with Matt and Dan. Welcome back to the final section of The Mix with Matt and Dan. It's just fun to say The Mix with Matt and Dan. It's a lot of good, hard consonants What does The Mix mean? Should we get that out? Marketing so we don't, Mix. Yeah. I said it in the middle well, section. you know, but like... You don't it, remember the past I, at all, do you? I do. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> I wish I could lie. Um, so, but tell me more about The Mix. Where'd you get that name, Dan? Well, when I was sort of looking through what we do, I, the way I, I talk about 500 Rockets is that it's the perfect mix. It's a mix of you on tech and business and sales and, you know, that kind of strategy and automation and data, you know, and you also do, you're also creative. There's, you have a lot of that stuff in you, 
but your strength is that side of it. My strength is I don't, I've never been in business. I've never worked in business. I've been in academics and entertainment forever. Um, and so my side of it is the creative and the strategic with rhetoric and my PhD in rhetoric and my background in comedy. And so when you put those two things together, they come together for a perfect marketing mix, really strong messaging, really well distributed. So it kind of fit there too. But you'd throw that, you throw that phrase out a lot during meetings about you need a marketing mix here. It's one of your little uh, bullwhips for people. Nice. That's one of the things you do to, to lash people for their ignorance. Like, well, what? Okay, y'all need a marketing mix. Let's make that happen. Yeah, well, um, that's funny. I don't know if I intentionally bullwhip people. <laughs> uh, I think the people Just that little I, intellectual bullwhips. I, I think the people that I say that to are maybe people who are uh, transplanted into a marketing role temporarily and maybe didn't have time to go through a formal marketing education like formal education can do. It can instill some core values in you that you take with you. I think there's probably two things that you learn getting an MBA in marketing. One of those is get the right people on the bus, right? You know, the good to great thing that everybody makes you read. You can just read the book. You don't need to go get the (laughs) MBA. And then the second thing in marketing specifically is that what has shown to work substantially is multi-channel marketing. Right. And most people, when they're building stuff, where we came up with part of the name for 500 Rockets is they're building one rocket. It's great. Build one rocket. But, you know, make sure there's budget for 499 more because you might not hit your target. Right. Yeah. And for me, like, and coming from rhetoric, uh, that this is all about constructing... So part of my background, too, is in postmodern messaging. So when you look at the modern landscape of the way messages are created and distributed in the world, it's become a, you know, you have to have a full rhetorical ecology. Like messages come to you who knows where. It's not sit down in front of your TV, watch an ad every 15 minutes, and that's how these messages enter your psychology about your for your buying practices. This stuff comes in from everywhere now. Like you're, you know, auditing the internet, and little things will pop up, or something will pop up in the middle of a video and remind you, oh, there's a such thing as a coffee cup. Oh, look, that coffee. There's 9,000 coffees now. Well, why is it bulletproof coffee, you know, is in my mind as soon as I say that? It's because I hang out in a certain world and they've populated that world with bulletproof coffee. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's created an entire ecology with that. And there's no such thing anymore as a singular message that's going to get you where you want to go. You have to build 500 messages because you don't know where you're going to find people. Interesting. Yeah. And not only build the messages, but deliver them in the right place. And I like to think of all those different channels from a marketing point of view as just different canvases. Right. Some is like the traditional canvas. Like you think you're building a still bowl of fruit and you're painting it with paints and you have to put that much energy and effort. Other times you can take 94,000 pictures of the fruit because you're using a digital camera and there's no cost to that. And you can just take it from every angle. And then, you know, other times you're building it in the sand with a stick. Right. Right. And so you have to kind of match the medium and the message to the canvas. And if you think that you're going to be rich enough to standardize your brand across all of those different canvases, then you should just not do entrepreneurism and you should just go join Coke (laughs) because Coke has enough money to do that. Right. But even Coke, when you look at that, like a very strong traditional brand that dominated with a lot of money, they saturated everything with Coca-Cola 
and that worked for a long time. But that doesn't work anymore. Coca-Cola right. does not have that kind of brand presence anymore because it's been fragmented by 300 other types of soda. Right. And they can keep spending forever if they want, but they're never going to get that again. Right. You know, so my favorite part of Blade Runner, the original Blade Runner, mm -hmm. was the blimps that went around all the time making advertising promises in this right. horribly dystopian culture. And they're bright and showing beautiful pictures of, you know, beautiful places. And they're like, begin again in the off-world colonies. Right. You know, where I can't remember the rest of it. I always remember that part. And I think about that a lot when I look at advertising and what it has to, you know, the level of promise it needs to have in order to break through anything. Right. <laughs> Begin again Begin in the off-world colonies. Yeah, take it all. It's clean slate, you know, <laughs> like your whole entire life. And I love those. I, I do what I, a lot of times, a, a wish exercise with clients where I'm like, tell me exactly what your clients want, like your consumers want from this. And I mean, don't be pragmatic about it all. They want your stuff for free. They want it right now. They want an unlimited supply of it. You know, they, they want it delivered to their house. All the things that Amazon gets close to, mm -hmm. you know, now they're, they're forcing Amazon to pay tax or to collect tax, which is going to do, which, you know, tarnishes the offer. Yeah. You know, you don't have to pay tax in the off-world colonies. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, I think um, they're going to be okay. Yeah, I think it'll be fine. That's my prediction. So go, going back, let's finish this with Amazon Go because it's an interesting evolution of business and technology that's going to act back on culture. And you just had a, a very distinct cultural experience with this. You took a vacation with your family from Austin, Texas, which is um, where people go to get acclimated before they go to hell. It's 100 degrees for the last two straight weeks. Uh, yesterday, I stepped in a melted bird. Like, it's the hottest place in the country right now. Right. And so you took, very prescient, by the way, to take a 12, set up a year and a half ago to take a 12-day vacation yeah, or a 100-degree heat wave. We run our vacations like the Amazing Race. It's kind of how we like to travel. A lot of people go to the San Diego Zoo, for example. Uh, they did the San Diego Zoo in a day or a day and a half, and they really enjoyed it. My wife and I, we do it in about two hours. <laughs> right? So we like to hit it. We like to go and see it, and then we move on. And we know we've structured our vacations around that. We've kind of trained our children to kind of travel in that way. And so we were able to go to six locations over a 12-day period, exploring the Northwest, and really kind of being in a part of the country that I'd never seen and never been before. Started in Seattle and then ended in Olympic National Forest, going to Canada and doing some island hopping, and had, a, and, you know, had some great family moments. So you literally went from the height of modern technological culture, which is Amazon Go. Yeah. That was in Seattle, right? It is correct. Where yeah. you ran into it. Down into the you know, height of natural forest out in the Olympic Yeah, the rainforest. National... I didn't even know we had yeah. rainforest. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, the rainforest in Washington. Yeah. yeah, America used to be a rainforest. We just ignore that fact. Yeah, that's fascinating. <laughs> You know, I'm from Kentucky. I did not ignore it. I grew up in it. You grew up in it. Yeah. Nobody knows. Nobody talks about it like that. Yeah. We had more trees on my, my parents had an acre. We have more trees on that acre than all of Austin, Texas has in the entire city. One of my favorite moments was when, um, <laughs> you talk about rhetoric and assigning blame and value to things. Um, a big, uh, truck of tree stumps drove by the logging community. And my son looked at that and said, did Trump do that? <laughs> Trump stumps. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's uh, responsible for cutting trees down. He is. Yeah, yeah you're so, right. Your in kid my was son's right. view, he's like, that's the most horrible thing that could possibly happen. 
did trick us. You know, and I'm, I don't even bash Trump. Like I'm not even sitting around bashing Trump. Um, I think he just got that from the massive amounts of media, right? He's yeah. like, oh, that's negative. Did Trump do that? You know, so, <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Ah, that's so funny. That's a horrible image. That, I mean, it's a perfect image too, like of just the stumps that they've had to actually pull out yeah. so that they could, you know, grow more trees and come back and you know behead them later. Yeah, I mean, but I believe that everything used to be a rainforest by the volume of trees that they're still cutting down. Like, I, I'm sure we had a lot of them. Well, human beings were never meant to run this planet. Trees were meant to run this planet. <laughs> right. If we hadn't invented metal, you know, there's no way we would have beaten trees. That's right. Imagine taking a tree down just with your hands. Not, not gonna. You're not taking it down with a rock axe. No, trees. Trees clearly won the game, but then eh, it turned out we found a technological advantage. The old Amazon Go, the first operating system, metal tools. There you go. So, so you went to Amazon Go. Tell us about this, and this we'll we'll finish up with this. Just give us sort of your sense of. You walked in the store and you started thinking about, you know, oh my God, this is something yeah, really new. Know, I'm, you know, I, I actually, my undergrad, I have a sociology degree, right? So I really, I pay attention to kind of how society influences the individual, right? Psychology is where the influence comes from the individual to society. Sociology is the reverse of that. It's all the same stuff, just a different source of perspective. And so when I go into these experiences, I love building products. I love innovation and technology. So in a, in a way, this was kind of the unexpected highlight of my trip of being able to really just be able to brag and say, I went to the store before all my friends who are tech nerds, right? right? It's really all ego driven. But I, I go in and I'm kind of just using this lens or this filter of how I look at it. Like I like to build software. I really have a deep understanding of technology and I like to kind of predict what's going to happen based on what this user experience is. Because what I find is this massive amount of demand is created from these deficiencies that software puts in the world. Right? Yeah, that's the perfect way of explaining it. Yeah. Yeah. So I go in and I'm like, okay, and I'm trying to experience it. And like the overwhelming emotion for me was just freaking boredom. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, oh, they turned me into a warehouse worker. <laughs> well, know? yeah, they took away yeah. all this stuff from it, but yeah. they didn't add anything back in. Yeah, and so the demand, but that to me right there, that thing, that knit is the thread I was talking about earlier of pulling the thread and being able to sell somebody million dollars worth of stuff. If you follow that scent and you say, okay, that void, a void in the market has a natural vacuum effect and demand has a vacuum effect. I call that demand and it sucks things up into it. So it sucks innovation and additional time and resources. Amazon Go, that will suck up all of these other things that now have to be in the market. And then all of a sudden you'll look at Amazon Go and be like, well, right now it's kind of boring, but whoa, yeah. look at this other layer right. that they built to make it entertaining and exciting. And there's really some profound softwares that are coming based on that as the bedrock. Yeah, that's really interesting because it it does everything. Every time you take something out of human experience, it creates that vacuum, and other stuff's going to come back, you know, swooshing in to fill that. And that's the beauty of capitalism, right? Right. It will fund anything if there's a vacuum and there's a product that says, "Hey, I've, I can get that's in right. there right now," it'll fund it. That's right. The moment it's no longer relevant, it will die. Yeah. Right. And so there's going to be massive amounts of collateral damage in the marketplace because of Amazon Go. 
and people ignored it. They didn't innovate around it. I, I slam on a, you know, on some of the grocery stores that are out there because, you know, the shopping cart's the same thing. You know, they didn't innovate. They innovated right. on the supply chain. They were genius around that, but they didn't really bring in a technical layer. And then all of a sudden the tech guys walk in and those guys are so far behind yeah. that, you know, all of a sudden we got tech guys owning grocery stores. Right. Yeah, I totally see that. Like I, I remember um, walking into a grocery store in L.A. and they had just gone bagless, you know, in, in this uh, part of L.A. like they are in Austin now. Yeah. And I was in there, and I was in the in line, and the nineteen-year-old cashier bag boy was like, uh, "Do you want a bag for your groceries?" And I'm like, "No, no, I don't. I want you to carry them out to my car." <laughs> One by one. <laughs> I said, I want you guys, I want you to get seven other employees and create a, a, a line where you right. can guys toss them to each other until you get to my car. That's awesome. You know, and he's looking at me. He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, how else am I going to get into the car? <laughs> you want me to walk out of here with him, don't you? I said, I think what you meant to say was, did you bring your own bags or would you like to purchase a bag? I said, because otherwise we're going to be challenged <laughs> right. at this part otherwise, of the transaction. Otherwise, we're, we're going to have a, a standoff here, Because they always ask, do you want some help out to your car? Hell yes, I do. <laughs> yeah, I want you to carry these 84 items. And I'm going to carry the uh, toilet paper that's too big. You should always say yes. Always say yes, I want some help out to my car. And then lay down on the floor and say, carry me. <laughs> it's the same thing, though. Like, when you look at that, and I think you're right. Like, you go in and you actually look at the old old school grocery experience that's never been, quote unquote, disrupted. It's never been really technologized, you know, to the level that guys will come in and just, like you said, the barcode was huge, but all it did was make it, you know, so they didn't have to read the number. Right. But this is something completely different. Yeah, it is. And it, the personalization, the software layer that's coming out of this. You build the hardware into in tech, and then you kind of get that right, and then you build this like that hardware opens up a software opportunity. I'll give you an example. Um, there's a lot of sub markets in the app store, right? Like you can say there's games or there's business apps or whatever, but by and large, all of those are apps, right? Amazon Go is going to create three clear app stores, three additional app stores. One will be for nutritionists. Right, so you'll be able to have a highly qualified, real nutritionist vetted from the hundreds of thousands of quacks out there. That's perfectly geared towards your body. You'll be able to pay them a couple bucks a month. They'll be able to offer you some nutritional insight that's reflected at the point of sale. Right, so when you walk up to the product, you'll have your avatar on that product as to whether or not your nutritionist said you can eat that thing or not based on the content calorie or, you know, based on the, uh, the calorie content or based on the ingredients in that product. So the nutritionist for a very low dollar will have access to that point of sale and be able to influence that. So that's one side of it. The next one is your gym membership. When they put the technology in the gym, they're going to create an ecosystem for personal trainers who can go in and help monitor and get you fit and give you things for just a couple dollars a month because the distribution side of that, they will have bigger economic access to hundreds of millions of audience members and they will be able to charge you just a couple, three dollars for the sheer information that's in the system and personalized to you. So how can a Planet Fitness possibly 
compete with an Amazon fitness, yeah. right? How could that possibly be? Because when you think about it, Amazon already has all the gym equipment. They have it in their warehouses. What you're talking about is them taking over another retail store. All the retail stores are going out of business. Amazon Fitness opening up an entire chain of these stores and then putting in their tech. They have the entire ecosystem. Right. And so using that one Amazon account will then offer you the opportunity to have something track you, follow you around the store, literally figure out how many times you lifted the dumbbell and the barbell, <laughs> keep track of that in your stupid little graph, right? There's no glasses. There's no goggles. There's no thing you're going to wear on your face all the time. It's done. It's over. If you're in those companies, it's over, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's going to be niched out and pushed over. It's done. This is the technology of the future. This is how we're going to do it. And it's just a matter of time before everybody else is convinced. We heard it right there. Matt Bruche telling you what the future is because he lives in the future. We've learned he does not live in the past. He does not remember what was done earlier in the podcast. Uh, he's kind of in the present if he's empathizing with you. But really, Matt lives in the future. So if there's one thing you've learned from, what did we say the t-shirt was for this one? Cruel, cruel wins? <laughs> yeah, cr <laughs> cruelty wins. Cruelty wins. Matt lives in the future. So this is our first episode of The Mix with Matt and Dan, uh, brought to you, of course, by 500 Rockets Marketing. It's our digital marketing company. Check it out online at 500rockets.io. Give us a call. Uh, we will come in and sell your stuff because we build rockets. Anything else, Matt? Other than that, Dan, I think we're on a good place. And uh, is there anything you want to add? I do have a, we have a couple software products coming, part in this podcast. I'm going to be interviewing my father. Some of those episodes are going to be sprinkled in. My father uh, no notoriously was the sound man for Led Zeppelin, which is ironic that I advertise him that way because he did so much more than that. He invented dozens of products and had an international you know, business. Yeah, but you don't get bigger than Led Zeppelin. Yeah, you don't get bigger than Led Zeppelin. That's where <laughs> Shed Zeppelin comes in. My favorite part is like he worked with Genesis like closely. Like he was business partners with Genesis, yeah. right? And we don't even mention Genesis. No, ever. Yeah, One no, of the biggest ever. rock bands ever, but Led Zeppelin. Yeah. Sound and light? Oh, that guy. Oh, yeah, he was a roadie for Led Zeppelin. That's clearly his <laughs> highest accomplishment in the world, right? Other than the fact that he completely revolutionized a bunch of industries. I, I just want to give everybody a fair heads up not going to be a lot of sex, drugs, and rock and roll conversation. We're going to take it from a father interviewing a son, talking about business ideas. He truly gave me my first MBA, and I'm hoping to capture some of that on audio and share it with other people. That's why it's the mix. You never know what you're going to get. You might learn stuff about Led Zeppelin. You might learn stuff about marketing. It's, it's the mix, Matt and Dan and a bunch of other people. So uh, come back and hear us again. We will be back. Um, thanks, and we are out.